Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. In the year 1941, two employees of a plastic manufacturer were looking towards the future. And they wrote this. Plastic man will come into a world of colour and bright, shining surfaces. He's surrounded on every side by this tough, safe, clean material which human thought has created. We shall see growing up around us a new, brighter, cleaner, more beautiful world, an environment not subject to the haphazard distribution of nations' resources, but built to order. The perfect expression of the new spirit of planned scientific control. The Plastics Age. Let's fast forward. In the year 1,041, or thereabouts, it's a Thursday, maybe a Wednesday, life is emerging for a second time from the world's oceans. Now, these oceans are covered by a layer of plastic that humans, who are long since extinct, have left behind. Tiny plankton-like creatures swim through the debris with special organs to detect their favourite type of plastic. A shiny red bird swoops down and eats a piece of plastic, the exact same shade as its feathers. A large shape moves slowly through the plastic soup. It looks a lot like a turtle of yesteryear, except that its shell is now made from plastic bags and party balloons. Hello, welcome to Patented, a podcast about the history of invention and technology with me, Dallas Campbell. We live in plastic homes. We drive plastic cars. There is plastic in our air, our water. Plastic affects human health and the health of the planet. You know all this. So how did we arrive in this plastic world? And what might the future look like? Will it be a plastic dystopia? My guest today is Heather Davis, Professor of Media and Culture at the New School in New York. And she has pondered these very questions for a long time. We've covered three different inventions or beginnings in our chat today. First, the emergence of plastics. Who invented it? Where did it come from? Next, we move on to the birth of our culture of disposable plastic. I suppose the culture that we are now in at the moment. And finally, the inventions yet to come, the possibility of new forms of life emerging as a result of the changes plastics have made to the planet. Enjoy. Hey, 
Heather Davis, welcome to the show. Welcome from Brooklyn, which is where you are. Yeah, thanks so much. I wish I was in Brooklyn. I like Brooklyn. I haven't been to Brooklyn for ages. So I don't quite know where to start. I suppose we've got three kind of areas that I'd like to talk about. The first one is let's get the kind of facts about where plastic came from, the, the actual invention. And then I want to talk a little bit more about the birth of our culture of disposable products, like how our relationship with plastic changed. And then I thought we could go on a little magical mystery tour and talk about some of the imaginary evolution of animals in in our plastic plastosphere we've invented. Does that sound like a plan? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, plastic. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. We could not survive without it as a species. Well, certainly in the way that we live at the moment. It hasn't been around for that long. So when was the first plastic as we might recognise plastic? The history of plastic and the history of its invention in part depends on how you define plastic. Mm. And one of the things that's a little complicated about plastic as a material is that like, it's not one specific material. It's actually a set of materials that are grouped, but each molecular composition has its own characteristics and its own specificities and its own histories of invention. So that's the reason why it's there. But what I would say is that... <laughs> I don't know. And I'm really sort of like who invented it's you know it's like who invented wood, <laughs> but I know what you mean. It is a family of there's lots of sort of different kinds of plastic. But I suppose as we as a where does the word plastic come from? Plastic. Well, so I mean, this is one of this is some of the interesting things is plastic has long been used as a word for like molding and has been used in relationship to mm. visual arts or you know the ability to make something out of clay. You know the, when we talk about the plastic arts, for example, so sculpture and those kinds of things that's been in usage for a very long time and plastic all dates all the way back to the Greek as a terminology and again it refers to the ability to be molded uh, which is the reason why we called plastic plastic but plastic came to be understood as plastic or like the way that we think about this proliferation of fossil fuel based molecules that are novel kinds of materials Mm. that came to be called plastic through a trade journal that was originally kind of produced in October of 1925. And so that's how we came to kind of think of these things as plastic. But maybe to answer your question more a little bit more specifically, there's sort of like three places where people start to talk about the invention of plastic. One is with William Henry Perkin, who invented out of coal tar. He discovered that you could produce a synthetic mauve, which at the time was like really revolutionary. How do you mean it? What a synthetic mauve? How, what do you mean like by the color? Mauve? The color mauve. Oh, the <laughs> like, color. Okay. Yeah. So oh, before right. that, you the only place you could get the color purple or mauve from was, at least in Europe, was from a bunch of snails, and those had been uh, really driven to the brink of extinction. Some of them actually did go extinct. Wait. So so it's almost like the wait the. The colour purple kind of didn't exist. Well, it did exist, but it could only exist via biology. And then suddenly it was like run out of snails. How are we going to make move? Well, it wasn't, I don't think it was quite um, as deliberate as that. Maybe they didn't say it like that. (laughs) Yeah, I think it was more that like, (laughs) exactly. I think it was more that like, one of the really interesting things about, probably as you know, about many scientific inventions, but certainly it's true of many inventions of various plastics, is the fact that a lot of it was pretty, like not accidental in the sense that that chemists were, were really interested in what happens when you mix different kinds of compounds together and put them under different conditions of pressure and heat. But there wasn't a lot of deliberateness in the sense of, because it was very little understood how 
you know, at that time, this was like the mid-19th century. So at that time, there wasn't a good understanding of the function of the relationship of molecular structures. And so because of that, it wasn't particularly deliberate in the sense that like you couldn't be like, oh, I would like to make a synthetic dye that's the color of purple so that we could produce this on mass and many people could wear purple so that we could, you know, solve this problem of running out of snails. It's, it's, it's a big problem. It's, it's more like people were just playing around with coal tar and like and figured out and instead of other people who just kind of ignored the strange things that were happening Herkin was really interested in this and was like oh wow this could actually have incredibly useful applications I mean in some cases like the invention of celluloid which is a little bit later that one was John Wesley Hyatt and he actually was trying to do something much more deliberate because there was like a $10,000 reward for being able to make a synthetic product that could replace ivory in the billiard ball trade because billiards had wildly taken off. It was wildly popular and uh, horn and ivory were becoming increasingly difficult to source. Well, can I just ask you about that, about sort of materials generally? Because I'd heard, am I right in thinking, I always think of Bakelite as the kind of origins of plastic, and I don't know if it is. is. Aren't billiard balls made of Bakelite? And so was there a... Almost like the you know like the X Prize now or the Earthshot Prize, which is like a, a big financial incentive in order to solve a problem. Was it because the materials of the time, things like ivory, and, and I guess I don't know China and other materials were just expensive? Was it, was that the? Yeah, it was both an expense problem and also a supply problem because obviously, like, again, if you're tracing these materials, so just to kind of differentiate a little bit. So Bakelite, you're right, is the first fully synthetic plastic. The inventor, Leo Bakeland, applied for a patent in 1907 and then it was patented in 1909. So he was working on this at the very beginning of the 20th century. And he had been a well-known chemist up until that point. You know, he'd already made a fortune off making photographic paper. And with that money, he just created a lab and started fiddling around to sort of see what he could find. And he was actually interested in finding a replacement for shellac, which again is another material that comes from beetles. <laughs> so, so okay. it's the kind of thing that you put on, you know, like it's a varnish, right? You can use it as a varnish for various things, right. but it's also moldable and bendable and pliable. You can make all kinds of things out of it. But in all of these cases, like in the case of horn or of um, shell or of shellac or of these beetles or of the snails that, that were used for the purple dye, all of these things, because of the kind of interest in a kind of burgeoning middle class that was starting to emerge around that time and the kind of expansion of the bourgeoisie, then there was also an interest in the expansion of the availability of consumer products. And because of that, then all of a sudden the kind of supply chains that had previously existed that were all dependent upon, put it crudely, the deaths of animals, there just wasn't enough to kind of fulfill that demand. And also, I mean, in many of the histories that I've read, people were saying also that there, you know, because of the amount of pillaging of those animals, then it meant that many of them were becoming endangered. Mm. And so it was a kind of shift to the synthetic, both because you could produce kind of much larger markets out of it. Like this was a hugely profitable enterprise for all of these inventors. And in addition to that, it kind of like lessened the impact on the animal world. It's interesting how the invention of plastic was in a way, in one point was a a response to kind of environmental 
stresses that human beings have put on the natural world. And of course, we're saying exactly the same thing. It's like, oh, we've got too much plastic now, which is putting stresses on the environmental world. It's sort of, in a way, it's come, come full circle. Let's just talk about the early plastic. You know, you talked about the burgeoning middle classes and, and I suppose the flexibility of this new material that could do all kinds of things. What kind of products were made from early plastic? So things like Bakelite, okay, beyond billiard balls. I always think of things like radios, telephones, and, and these were the things that were never made of anything else other than plastic. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, Bakeland um, dubbed uh, Bakelite the material of a thousand uses, and he trademarked it with the infinity symbol because he was kind of really trying to push it as something that could replace all kinds of things. It was used for buttons, for bracelets, for toys, for telephones, as you mentioned, radios, pipe stems, guns. You know, you could use it for ashtrays, cigarette holders, you know. Important things, the really important yeah, things just, <laughs> you know, Just all kinds of things <laughs> that people were really interested in. Sex toys, that's what I noticed. I read, read one of your essays and you mentioned sex toys. I wonder, if they, did they have Bakelite sex toys back <laughs> That then? would be super interesting to find out. I, I don't know. <laughs> so yes, so actually, well, the infinity sign is really interesting. So suddenly we've got Bakelite and all these new products, which presumably couldn't have really existed. Was there a point when it became... Actually, this kind of gets us on to sort of act two, if you like. Was there a point when plastic suddenly became, in a way, too ubiquitous and started to become a problem? Like, when did our behaviour towards plastic change? When did it stop becoming a kind of wonder material and just became a disposable material that we actually just forgot about? And the infinity symbol disappeared and it would just get thrown away and... Yeah, it was really in the 1960s and 70s when that happened, at least in terms of public perception. So um, one of the other things I want to mention about the kind of early invention of plastics is that, you know, once people did figure out how to kind of shape things through having a better understanding of uh, molecular structures and the ability to be able to manipulate things a little bit more consciously, there was a real explosion in the types of materials that were produced. So like the German company IG Farben, for example, was synthesizing a new polymer almost every day for 10 years throughout the 1950s. So there's just like this astronomical number of new types of materials that were being produced. And one of the things that happens quite early on, so there was a conference of the National Society of the Plastics Industry in 1956. And sort of famously, one of the editors announced at this conference that quote, your developments should be aimed at low cost, big volume, practicability and expendability with a goal of winding up in the garbage wagon. So as of 1956, there was already this turn to a kind of disposability in relationship to plastics because the people involved with the society of the plastics industry realized that they could make a lot more money if they made disposable products rather than um, making like durable products. And so there was a real shift actually so, like, you know, in 1969, for example, uh, nearly a quarter of plastics went into single-use packaging, and today that number is 40%. So it's really grown over the decades, despite the fact that the public it has always been a little bit skeptical. Like, what's really interesting is when you go back and look at the kind of archival records, people really had to be convinced to throw things away. There had to be massive kind of advertising campaigns and other types of incentives to throw things away because you're you're thinking wow. about a generation 
you know, I mean, first of all, I would say like it through most of human culture, the idea of throwing things away is very counterintuitive, right? Like the amount of effort that goes into making something, you wouldn't want to just throw it away, right? There's cultures of repair and reuse throughout the world. And I think that this especially got heightened for folks living in Europe and North America during the Second World War. Yeah. Well, you'd make do and mend was, exactly. the, was the, whole, the whole ether. So you're saying we actually had, we had to sort of rewire our brains to learn to, to throw. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I mean, my grandparents, they'd go shopping. There were no plastic bags. My grandmother would have a kind of wicker basket. She'd go to the shop. And I, I mean, I remember the kind of advent of things like plastic bags in supermarkets and thinking how ridiculous it was and seeing fruit wrapped in plastic. And th- so we've established the kind of first plastics, Bakelite, early part of the 20th century, 1907. And then we started to see this as a sort of wonder material. But then we kind of get into the, I suppose, the First World War and the Second World War. How influential was was things like the war as a driver of innovation? Uh, the conflict generally is quite a big driver of innovation. How much did w- was plastic affected by by the, the big conflicts of the of the 20th century oh hugely affected especially the second world war because there was much more knowledge and money being put into the development of various types of plastics but a lot of the plastics that we're very familiar with now you know such as like nylon for example was really first used for parachutes for people who are flying airplanes during the wars, especially during the Second World War. And then, you know, other things like Teflon, for example, um, which we now know is the thing that is related to Gore-Tex, which is what we use for sort of high-end rain jackets and rainwear, but also more quotidianly for the kind of non-stick surfaces that we can use for pots and pans. That material was originally used during in the Manhattan Project, as well as polyethylene. Polyethylene was also used to be able to make nuclear bombs. So there's a very significant relationship between those two things. I mean, the amount of money that was being put into the war effort to be able to create different types of materials that would help soldiers in in, in fighting, including things also like plexiglass or perspex, depending on how you call it, was first used as windshield also in, in aircrafts. So the Second World War, I think, really can't be underestimated in terms of the massive explosion of plastics and the types of plastics and the types of plastic uses that uh, happened. And in part, the kind of drive towards increased consumerism in relationship to plastics after the Second World War is really built through the fact that there was such an abundance and such a so much money being put into the war effort and being put into the development of all these materials that after the war, those companies still wanted to maintain those same kinds of profits and therefore had to basically essentially invent all kinds of different ways in which plastics would then infiltrate our lives in all these different ways that we've become very accustomed to. And presumably the proliferation of oil as well. I mean, obviously you mentioned petrochemicals at the beginning, but I mean, plastics are a byproduct of of the fuel industry and and obviously oil is the is the product that's really dominated the 20th century and the 21st century there's always been a relationship between the plastics industry and the petrochemical industry. Obviously, plastics come from petrochemicals. All the material bakelite really is the first fully synthetic material, which is meaning a material that is derived from fossil fuels and that has been that is a fully kind of novel material. So yeah, you're right. There's there's always been a relationship between the fossil fuel industry and plastics, um, and we can see that continuing today. As an ecologist, you see my my billiard balls are all made of ivory, so that's fine. <laughs> They're not. And that was a joke. (laughs) 
on Gone Medieval from History Hit, we're here to spoil you with the biggest names. Chinggis Khan, the thing that really galvanised his wars of conquest was his belief that he had been given a mandate to have dominion over the entire planet. We explore new archaeological finds. After the Viking Age, lots of medieval artefacts coming out of the site as well. And delve into the lives of those you might never have heard of. He's not a bad and evil king like King John. I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And I'm Matt Lewis. From surviving everyday life in the Middle Ages to dynasty-shattering events. Gone Medieval is the place to quench your thirst for history. Subscribe now to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Plastic, the ubiquitous nature of plastic, the fact that it's so cheap, the fact that we don't even think about it. Obviously, our behaviour has changed over the 1960s, the 70s, the 80s, basically over my lifetime. It's funny, actually, when I talk to kids now about we, I, I do this thing called teen tech and, and we, we think we get kids to think of how better we can change the world. And one of the things they always talk about is plastic. They talk about let's clean up the oceans and da 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 da. It seems to be the, the sort of backlash against plastic. There does seem to be a, well, a generational shift back to thinking about cleaning up the oceans, cleaning up the landscape. Is, the, is that change real or is it, am I just imagining it? No, I think that that change is very real, actually. When I started doing this work about 10 years ago, there was very few people talking about plastics. It wasn't really talked about in the media. It was sort of like sort of niche, strange, kind of like, you know, white liberal environmentalism problem. And there were people who lived near um, petrochemical factories and the production of the plastics manufacturing. I think that folks who lived in and around plastics manufacturing have been thinking about these problems for a very long time. But now there's really been an explosion in terms of thinking about what are the consequences of having so much plastic in the world. And you can see that in things like the United Nations Environmental Program is trying at the moment to put together a protocol that would actually regulate the life cycle of plastics. That's something that I did not expect to see so quickly. I have a lot of hope for that as a regulatory mechanism. One thing I love about your work, or one thing that you sort of commented about in your work is the sort of visual language in the arts and the humanities of how we imagine the relationship between biodiversity and plastic, if you like. And, and I know things like imagining the, the evolution of new creatures that would depend on plastic in a way that <laughs> rather than a, as a waste product, but as an essential thing. Just tell us a little bit about, about that for our listeners, because it's, really, it's a really novel and interesting idea. Sure. So I'll say two things. One thing is that part of it is really real. There actually are numerous kinds of organisms that can successfully digest various different kinds of plastics. But part of the reason why I started really becoming interested in this is because there was a really famous article um, published in the early uh, 2010s 
describing what the authors, the Zettles, call uh, the plastosphere, which comprises the microbial community on plastic debris, and which, because of the amount of microplastics in the oceans... Can I just pick up on that term, the plastosphere? So what we mean by that is the idea, well, you've got the biosphere and the geosphere and the atmosphere. So it's another layer is that what we mean by the plastosphere? Another layer of plastic, shrunk wrap planet. Yeah, I mean, I think we could definitely think of it in those terms. I think the original authors were really thinking of it as like these tiny microbial communities that live on these like floating rafts of plastic that are all throughout the ocean, right? So they were thinking of it mm, because okay. microplastics numerically dominate marine debris and are primary kind of colonized by microbial and other microscopic life. And so when you look on them, they're basically these like sort of like tiny little planets or something of various kinds of microbes and bacteria that are floating all over the world. And they were really curious about like, well, what are they doing, right? Could they be um, potentially vectors of disease? Could they, were the um, microbes eating the plastic that they were on? Was it a a food source? They weren't really sure, but one of my good friends and colleagues, um, Panar Yoldish is a, a visual artist and she ran across this idea as well. And then she really ran with it. So she created this artwork called Ecosystem of Excess. And in it, she imagines what it would be like to have multicellular organisms successfully digesting and eating plastics. So she started with all kinds of, you know, organisms that already are eating plastics. So birds and turtles and other kinds of creatures that are already eating plastics. And she creates these very lifelike, but you know, totally speculative, you know, organ systems like, you know, kidney systems or other digestive systems for animals to be able to kind of evolve to effectively be able to use plastic as a nutrient source. And what's interesting is that I think this is one of those moments where, you know, our artistic practice and the world are kind of merging because we are seeing this, you know, mealworms and waxworms can both have both been shown to be able to digest plastics. There's funguses that can also do this and other kinds of bacteria that have been found in garbage dumps um, can also do this. So there's a way in which, yeah, art is sort of like like sitting in between and showing us the kind of realities that we're already within, um, which I think is really fabulous. Yeah, art is very good at that. I was reminded, actually, just when you mentioned that, I don't know if you know, the great scene at the end of Werner Herzog's uh, Cave of Forgotten Dreams where it suddenly cuts to this weird albino alligator for, for no reason that has kind of like turned into this strange monster because of, I can't remember what, because of plastic or nuclear waste. I can't quite remember what it was, but I, I just... <laughs> it is it is an amazing scene. It's, well, it's one of the great endings. It's one of the, do you know the scene yes. I mean? Yes, I've seen it. Yeah, I totally remember that scene as well. I really also really love it. But yeah, I mean, you know, Panar's work does that, right? Like you walk into a room and what was amazing is, I, you know, I once saw her give a presentation and the person who was sitting next to me wasn't sure whether what she was presenting was like scientific fact or speculation. And I think that that is Which, but I like part of that. what's so, exactly, really nice. it's part of what's so generative yes. um, yeah. and so interesting about what she's doing is that like, it really is kind of blurring those boundaries and building upon what's actually scientific scientific fact, but pushing it in a way that I think it becomes like a little bit more visible for people because it's uh, larger organisms and there's something kind of playful about it. Fantasy animals. Fantasy animals is a way of thinking about the Anthropocene and, and the relationship between plastics and biology. Tell me about 
balloon turtles. So this is uh, this is an invention of Pinar Yodish, and she was really looking at kind of speculatively at like what happens when if we take the kind of current conditions of the massive proliferation of plastics, especially in the ocean, and how you know animals might in a kind of fantastical way adapt to their conditions. And one of the things she came up with was balloon turtles, where turtles who all really like to eat balloons for whatever sets of reasons. I think they, they maybe they look like jellyfish or other types of organisms that they're used to eating. Being able to, like, they've evolved and have been able to use the balloon as a kind of, like, flotation device so they can go up and down. They've kind of, like, become part balloon, essentially. And obviously, this is purely imaginative. <laughs> but but uh, it's not, It is imaginative, but it's interesting because, of course, natural selection is the great designer. You know, if you want to understand and how design works just look at just look at natural selection in action and one could imagine given enough time and given enough plastic that nature nature will find a way mm-hmm. somehow exactly to make, to make sort of balloon to- yes exactly there's um all kinds of digestive organs that she created as well as there's one of my favorites is is the pantone colors of the feathers so different types of birds prefer different colors and those colors are associated with different companies so like Dasani blue coca-cola red you know because they like to eat different color bottle caps right and so then she kind of speculates that through the ingestion you know a bit like flamingos right through the ingestion of too yes. many bottles caps of a particular color that their feathers start to take on the Pantone color, the proprietary patented color of these major corporations. I refer you to the Wes Anderson film, The Life Aquatic, where... I don't know if you've seen The Life Aquatic, where there's all kinds of like wacky designed fish like that based on strange, on the sort of Wes Anderson color palette. No, I haven't Sorry. seen that one. That's, That's a cultural seems, reference seems too far. <laughs> It's worth it's worth watching. I wanted to say it's interesting, you know, as the sort of natural selection we create animals in our own image. Mm-hmm. It has almost religious overtones. To it. <laughs> anyway, there is lots of fun cultural stuff surrounding plastic. There's lots of political stuff surrounding plastic. There definitely is. Yeah, lots of links between our human behaviour and plastic and ecology and everything. Oh, we could talk forever about this. It's funny actually. In my own sort of career making science programs, I've done lots of programs over the last of twenty years or so about new bacteria that will eat plastic and new kind of mushrooms that make kind of plastic and corn plastic. I still use cling film. I'm terrible. You know, I'm just as guilty as everyone else, you know, because it's convenient. That's the thing. We tend to, human beings, we tend to do things depending on our wallets and our convenience and yeah, I mean, that's part of the reason why I love working with like designers, right? And artists is because I think like, you know, when you talk to designers, you know, they're invested in being like, okay, well, could we make like an affordable, like seaweed based cling film? Or, or could we, mm-hmm. you know, are there ways in which we can like, because, you know, one of the things I think that's so interesting is that all of these things are so recent, right? Like, you know, it's only been that's, since the yes, 1950s. Yes that we've entered into this way of life and now we feel like we can't live without it but actually it's just our grandparents that live without it so it's not but also hard. we can change really quickly i remember when with smoking for example i remember mm-hmm. i was living in america i remember when they said you we, you can now no longer smoke inside restaurants and we all thought this is going to be chaos that's never going to work but within about a week, we were all like, yeah, of course we're not going to smoke. It's like we do, human being, we're, we're reluctant to change. But when we do change, it's fine. Like smoking, is, I think, is a really good example. Not smoking in bars seemed like horrific in the mid-90s. But then by kind of 
January it was you know anyway it's so true everyone was like oh all the bars are gonna close no one's gonna go yeah. you know all this stuff and like and yeah it's like that didn't happen yeah it's totally fine yeah um Heather thank you very much for introducing us to the wonderful interesting work that you do thinking about plastic also the the sort of history of plastic it's a it's a long and complex history we could spend weeks talking about it but you've given us a nice little thumbnail snapshot 1907 that's that's what I'm gonna say Yes, you can you can say Baker, that. <laughs> but what was his name? Mr. Bakerlite. What was his name again? Leo Baker. Leo Bakerland. Baker. Leo Bakerland, mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen, 1907. You can blame him for everything. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Heather, thank you very much indeed for, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed that. I hope that's given you some food for thought, some plastic food for thought. I've just suddenly had an image in my mind of Plastic Bertrand. Do you remember Plastic Bertrand? He was a Belgian singer, I think in the 1980s, and he used to hang out with Noel Godin, a kind of artist, situationalist, surrealist, who used to custard pie people. I don't know if he still does, actually. He famously custard pie Bill Gates and other people. His whole idea was to kind of bring politicians and people who were enthralled with themselves down a peg or two. And he was always a great hero of mine. Anyway, Plastic Bertrand used to... was involved in the custard pieing, I think. Anyway completely irrelevant but get in touch with any suggestions don't forget to leave a rating or review to help the algorithms do the algorithmic software type activities that would be very helpful if you can bear to do that i'll see you next time thanks very much for your company when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code PATENTED at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.